This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy, whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful, simply because, do you notice, it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So the the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me – I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet, you, the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like Dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he can't outrun the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending $500-plus a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play, 
And uh, my wife so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league. And my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Oh, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team and he was just incredible. And his junior year when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was a, the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what, what you're creating. And, and instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees – that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing, you know, a year ago they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives, and now they're running a race. And they actually didn't win, right? But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. 
make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round uh, group that, that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles. And I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very, they're very willing to learn and open to, uh, to, to have opportunity from the parents. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you, you're trying to truly change your children uh, long-term. Always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. I could just tell somebody to vote for Trump or Hillary anytime, right? We could just go right there, right to the answer, hand it to our kids. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long-term. And in the end, if we're not setting up the long-term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with, with another person, make sure that you you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. One, thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody questions it, the media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the, the, the voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the, when the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on, um, you know, on the health care that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on health care? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? Because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts – I listen to a – out, you know, all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps, and you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting, you know, political arguments, or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about, I think, politics in general, you don't need to pile on. <laughs> ben loves a good pile on. Um, you don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. Make sense? That's why uh, Heather's advice on working on the principles and the values are so much more important than positions. Positions are going to change. Principles and values, they're eternal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you're seeing it play out in the news. This whole idea of emotional intelligence, to be a leader, you have to be able to manage your emotion. You have to be able to recognize your own emotions. 
uh, and manage them so that, that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. It might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, uh, if I shake it and create a, I'll create a reaction. But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. The problem is deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to, to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe. And if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? And it might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates. Do they possess emotional intelligence? And, and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. As a neuroscientist, Marjorie Woolicott had no doubts that the brain was purely a physical entity controlled by chemicals and electrical impulses uh, when she experimented with with meditation. And uh, when she did that the first time, her entire world and understanding changed. Woolicott's journey through years of meditation has made her question the reality that she had built her entire career upon as a neuroscientist and has forced her to ask what human consciousness really is. She's the author of the book Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Marjorie Woolicott is joining us now to talk about her story and help us understand our mind and our consciousness. Dr. Woolicott, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This topic fascinates me, and yet it's it's. Uh, I've had others on talking about consciousness, and it gets really heady. Um, so help us understand it. So you were you're a you're a, a PhD in neuroscience professor at the University of Oregon. You've been teaching about the brain and neuroscience and chemistry um, of the brain, and th- and then on the side you're meditating, and what happens to you? 
and you're actually um, absolutely right. And I should say that, if, as you mentioned, when I was first a young neuroscientist, I was totally a materialist because that's what we're trained um, to really understand in neuroscience through all of our research training. And then when I had this experience in meditation, which gave me a broader awareness of reality that I didn't normally had, I began to look into research related to consciousness to find out if there was something that might tell us why in certain states of awareness we might have this vaster consciousness than we normally do. And I then became fascinated by that information and, of course, began even teaching a class in complementary medicine where I talk about some of that research at the university. Now, a materialist meaning your initial belief about the brain was that it was all very physiological and chemical, very tangible it was about the brain matter, material. Exactly. And that my consciousness was only what my sensory um, filters would actually bring into me, like my eyes, my ears, etc. And um, what I think the newer research is beginning to tell us is that what really is happening is there's a vast amount of information that is coming in um, to us through the universe, including uh, you know not only visual and auditory, but other types of information. And for our survival as human beings, our brain has actually um, been constructed um, so that it filters out most of that, or otherwise we couldn't easily get around in the world if we were being constantly distracted by vast amounts of information. So hmm. it's very helpful to us, um, evolutionarily, we might say, in terms of this, um, to be able to be successful in um, the early hunter-gatherers. And for us, you know, if you're in sports, you have to be able to focus on the game in front of you and not on the people in the stands hmm. that are making a lot of distractions. So it's very good. But it also has this paradoxical um, function where it also limits our access to vaster consciousness. Oh, wow. See, that's huge. That's huge. That's, yeah. That is transcendent. That's because as a guy that believes in God and a higher power that I feel connected to regularly, I can never figure out why it's such a battle for me to stay connected. But yeah. what you might be telling me is my brain is in a way, my physiological brain is filtering out that other data so I can live. Exactly, and I think that the beautiful thing about that is once we understand it, and we understand it, it's this left side of the brain that's sort of controlling the right side of our body, which is the dominant side of our body, um, is the one that controls our language abilities and all these goal-directed actions. It's very important in the world, but um, it actually then filters out the ability of the right side of the brain, which gives us access to this broader awareness and this mm. broader visual-spatial attention. And so what I think people are beginning to learn that are doing research in this area is that if we can try to like lower the activation level of that left side of the brain, we can become we can have more access to these wider areas of awareness. And is that what they call mindfulness then would be, I guess, mindfully yes. uh, lowering that left side of the brain? Exactly. It's like they're, they're easy um, ways of doing this, easiest, easy tools that we can do. And one of them is simply trying to focus on our breath, for example, mm -hmm. and allow our attention to simply be with the breath and quiet the mind down. And then that left side of the brain quiets down and suddenly our awareness um, can become vaster and we can become aware, as you say, of more this, this vast level of consciousness that is around us. Mm. I love this. And um, ah, okay, here's what I got to know, Marjorie. What yeah. do all of your, what, what do your fellow neuroscientists think? 
Well, and that's a wonderful question for you, and I should say that neuroscientists are divided on this, certainly, because like me, most neuroscientists uh, have been growing up with an understanding that it's only the neurons in our brain that are giving us access to awareness around us, and they aren't really aware of anything that they might call vaster. And what's happened is that a few neuroscientists like myself have had experiences that give them an awareness of a vaster reality and also they've begun to do research in near-death experiences for example and they're saying the data don't correspond with our materialist worldview that everything is just a product of the activity of neurons in our brain and i'll, I'll just give you one yeah. quick, quick example um with a number of studies on near-death experiences, and an MD named Bruce Grayson is one of the people that's done the most research. He's at the University of Virginia. They show that a number of people will be, for example, in the um, operating room and their heart will stop. And in this case, their eyes are taped shut to protect their corneas during the operation. And yet when their heart stops and their brain activity is now, um, basically their EEG is flatlined, they would say, no EEG activity in the brain, the people have an awareness um, of, of being above their body, watching everything in the operating right. room. And the point is that they even can tell you details afterwards about who was there, what they were wearing, etc. And my materialist worldview as a neuroscientist can't explain that. Mm. So they say, wait a minute, okay, we have something we can't explain. Could we try to find a way of expanding our scientific worldview a little bit to include these verified experiences as part of our worldview? Boy. And um, that is, because again, we, I, we've heard of many, many ideas too about what... Um, you know, anesthesia, all these other things, but those are all material views, right? Of why right. the body would feel like it's floating, feel like it's looking down on itself. But if there is no EEG evidence that the brain is functioning and the person is dead yeah. uh, clinically, I guess, yeah. Um, then, yeah, you have to explain it by something else. Right. And I think what you're saying is very true, that the neuroscientists will take an individual case and they'll say, well, maybe there was an anesthetic effect and it caused certain um, ketamines to be released in the brain or something like that, and they might be causing it. And then they'll have another hypothesis. But I think one of the things that the neuroscientists doing research in this area, including, I mean, Bruce Grayson and a man named Pim Van Lomo in the Netherlands say is that if your brain, brain is truly flat, and this means the, the whole cortical area that is measurable through EEGs is flat, that's where you perceive things. And so they say, how can that be that you would have um, hallucinatory ones if your brain is flat? You should have nothing. You should right. just have basically a black consciousness. You would be unconscious. Wow. Is, um, and why are we so slow? I guess because science has a hard time validating this, quantifying it? Why are we so slow yeah. to take on the wisdom of like Asian wisdom that's gone on forever about the consciousness? And, and that's a wonderful question. And I should say that one of the things I think happens is that this is the worldview we're brought up in from the time we're little kids when we first go to school and in our science classes. And so I think that it's the dominant worldview and changing your whole worldview is actually a little bit um, unsettling, I would say, for scientists. And also, I should say that because we don't believe that these things are possible, the people that are in our governmental agencies that give money to research don't um, actually give money to research in that area because they say this isn't real. And mm. one of the things that I found was amazing about this is when I finally began to look at the research that is on the web um, in carefully um, 
um, critiqued scientific journals, there is a lot of research showing that consciousness is actually more than just the product of neurons in our brain. And once I went up there, I could find article after article, but most scientists won't even look there because they say it can't be true. They yeah. say something must be wrong with the research. I, I can't believe that that's the case. And yet there's, a, there's, I guess, on the edge, on the periphery, there's all of these validated points exactly. that could lead to something. Exactly. And, and so what I always say to my skeptical colleagues is I say, just go to the research and read the articles carefully. Be curious and then make your decision. But just have curiosity because that's what real science is about. Mm-hmm. Is it when do you sense? I mean, at this rate, when do you sense science will accept it and and more and make it a part of our our understanding that there's this greater consciousness? There's this thing bigger than the material. I think that. When we perhaps begin to have um, a, another generation growing up of young scientists who may be encouraged um, to actually look a little bit more in the area, I think that's beginning to happen when I look at a few of my younger colleagues. The one problem is that right now our scientific um, structure is such that those people aren't considered credible that do research in this area, and mm. so often it's harder for them to get tenure at a university. So I think what we need to do in universities is um, be willing to um, actually look carefully at the research people are doing and not prejudge it and say this is outside our normal scientific worldview so we won't even count it. It's so interesting. And then meanwhile, there's such a movement anyway to um, to yoga, to meditation, to Asian um, philosophy. One of the most popular uh, classes at Harvard, and we've had the professor on, uh, it's so loved, it's always full, is, is a class on um, Asian philosophy. Exactly. And, and then people are just craving it because it does bring answers to life. Yeah. So this is the very funny thing I think about our society in general, and that is that sometimes changes come from what I would call the general population up. And the resistant people may be the people that are higher up in our scientific community who have a more conservative worldview. And gradually the students at places like Harvard and University of Oregon, too, when I, when I first began to teach my complementary medicine class, my department had said, nobody will want to take this class. These are all pre-med majors. They won't be interested in that. And I said, just give it a try. Just give it a try. And of course, within like a day of registration, the whole class was filled and there was a waiting list because like in the Harvard class, yeah. people want this. So that was encouraging. Well, and it, it just jives with our, with our reality, right? I mean, yes. we know there's something more. When you can walk into a room and mm-hmm. sense a tone and a mood, yes. there's something more. There's, so there's got to be an energy. There's got to be a higher connective level of consciousness because you feel it. It's not just I'm gathering data materially. I'm feeling something change. Yes, we can feel an energetic an energetic um, change in the room, depending on, you know, as we move from one to another, or even when we're interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. And of course, the scientist says, oh, you're just picking up nonverbal cues. But I think that people that have that awareness know that it's much more than a nonverbal cue right. when you walk into it. Right. Room. Because you also might be fixated on, I mean, you might be distracted, but you can still sense that something's weird. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting that we, we try to explain it away through our own niche, our own area of specialty, yeah. right? And yet, yeah. like what I love about complementary medicine would be let's use multiple mechanisms, multiple belief sets, multiple sciences. Wow. Yes. Powerful. Exactly. Right. And I think that, as you said, 
things are changing because, for example, I've looked, for example, at Yale University and they have articles and research studies on, for example, energy healing and how it actually helps heart patients recover their heart rate stability and things like that. They, they become much more healthy in terms of their heart function through things like Reiki, which is an ener- energy healing me- mechanism. So I'm thinking if the medical school at Yale University is beginning to do this research and show valid results in randomized controlled trials, that should help us begin to expand this to our regular hospital settings and perhaps to other scientists yeah. around the world. And also, I guess, too, because it is so unsubstantiated, it's it could be more prone to, you know, to fakes, to, yeah. you know, yeah. people... Absolutely. I think that's a really good point that you make, too, because in every scientific field, you do have a certain number of people that may, for their own benefit, be um, doing things to the data that are not really accurate. And we know it's not um, any particular area because we hear occasionally a scandal here or there. I always say, look at the research carefully and look to see if it fits in with other research and replicate the research, because then you know, if you can replicate it, that it's real. And, And again, it's just that curiosity to say, let's try that. And then let's see what we think when we do enough studies that we have a broader frame of reference. And then we can say, ah, oh, maybe this really is real. Have you, are you familiar with Lisa Miller? No, I'm not. She wrote a book. She's out of Columbia, and the book is um, called The Spiritual Child. Oh, wonderful. You'll, you need to connect with her. She's yeah. been on the show twice, but she's just brilliant, and Columbia, yeah. and is, is a leading advocate that there's a spiritual side to us that has very deep-rooted academic validity. Oh, well, you know, and I just want to add related to that, as I was just looking at some research on the development of our attentional or our awareness systems, and young children do not have this particular um, attentional network called the executive attentional network actually developed until after seven years of age. And that's the um, area that is really good at um, being able to filter out certain things hmm. um, that aren't useful to us. So, oh, interesting. So you can really focus. And I'm thinking maybe that's why young children very often can have broader spiritual experiences and they tell their parents about them and the parents look at them like they're crazy. But the child may be having that access that then, as their attentional systems develop, may get a little bit more narrow. And that's what she talks about. And, but I didn't wow. know. I didn't know. But at seven years old, then the child starts having the executive functioning skills to actually f- filter out s- the spiritual side or yeah. the the higher consciousness. Yeah, unless they can stay more in that what we would call left um, uh, left side or right brain control that allows um, the uh, ability for us to stay more aware of these boundaries mm. of our normal awareness, our broader awareness, yes. Well, let's come back and talk about how we, just as average folks, can, get, can do that, can, can get more right brain control and, uh, and, and manage that left side of the brain to, to bring it down a bit so we can open up the gates to a higher level of consciousness. More with Dr. Marjorie Woolacott. Uh, Stick with us, folks. Again, her book is Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Marjorie Woolacott. She has been a neuroscience professor at the University of Oregon for more than three decades 
and a meditator for almost four decades. She also has a master's degree in Asian studies and um, is the author of the book Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Dr. Willicott, thank you again for being with us. Thank you. This is, um, you're talking to us about the fact that our brain, our physiological, material, chemical brain, is has a has a purpose apparently, which is to filter data, and uh, you, you're also finding out that consciousness, um, which would be, I guess, a, a, in fact, define consciousness. That's a very good question. What we really mean by consciousness is our awareness, and it can be a limited awareness of perhaps something that's just in front of us, but according to a number of people, including the great psychologist William James, there is a vaster consciousness that we have the capability of having access to. And this would be the example of sometimes when you know someone is going to be calling on the telephone, you just have that intuition when the phone rings, it's going to be your, um, I don't know, brother or another person or something like that, and you find out it actually is. It's like a lot of people have those broader intuitions. And they say that that's a vaster level of consciousness, what we might call a non-local consciousness that we can tap into when certain parts of our brain are quiet, and then we can actually um, receive this information that's there in the universe waiting for us to receive. Which is one of the goals of meditation, is to kind of get your mind in a neutral space where you are allowed to tap into that higher consciousness. Exactly. And you learned this, so you had this this little cognitive dissonance moment where as a, as a professor of neuroscience and a meditator, they kind of came together. And what happened to you in meditation that, that created the, the, the issue? Yeah, so when I was in a meditation retreat, I had this experience that was so different from my normal awareness of this incredible, like, love, like, radiating from the center of my chest and my heart, and it was like a a feeling of love and of joy that was bigger than anything I'd ever experienced before, and I also, in that same time, had a sense of of a connection with the rest of the world and the rest of humanity that I had never felt before, this sense of unity. And I remember the words that came to me at that time was, I'm home, I'm home, Mm. my heart is my home. And I realized that I was becoming aware of a new level of um, energy inside of me that was this very joyful, blissful, unitive energy inside of me. And, of course, when that happened, and then I went back home to really try to um, meditate, because now my heart wanted to get back into that place, beautiful joy and unity consciousness, I then found that, of course, it's not that I would instantly get back to that state every moment of my day, but I had to begin to, like, train myself to quiet that um, left side of my brain that's controlling all of my goal-directed actions and all of these thoughts about my to-do list so that I could move forward back to the other side of the brain, that right side that allows me to be more expansively aware, and then I could move back into that place of the present moment and feel that joy and that love, which as we all know, is what so many philosophies and religious traditions call God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, so it's, it really is – it's a skill set. It sounds like – and the skill isn't necessarily finding God. It's turning off your brain. Yes, because, the, because that awareness is always there when we can, like, quiet the brain down in that moment. You're oh, that's right. so profound. Isn't that – and again, what's beautiful too, just your explanation of it, love and joy radiating through you, connection to the rest of the world, this greater feeling of being home yeah. and, and connected to the universe and everybody. Um, 
And then I guess, too, once you've experienced it and tasted it, does it make going back easier? Absolutely, because then you know you've, you've had it before. And so it's like your whole body now has this awareness that it truly exists and you can get to it. And then you have this wonderful motivation, at least I did, of like, well, then let me get up in the morning and quiet my mind and spend about, you know, 30, 45 minutes just quieting my mind and practicing focusing on my breath, which is a beautiful way of making ourselves more still so that we're able to connect with this. And then the rest of your day is so much more easeful because you're coming now from this place of of feeling more unity with the people around you and feeling less challenged by those situations that come up. You can just stay in the present moment and deal with them. And yet you're still uber productive and (laughs) successful and it doesn't diminish you. The neat thing about it, it seems like connecting to that higher power and mindfulness is it just makes you a stronger tool and um, person, it doesn't it doesn't minimize your abilities. It doesn't weaken you. It gives you more. Absolutely, I think that that's certainly been the case in my own life. That um, during these last forty years since I started to meditate, my scientific research has been um, really expanding. And I think I've also am with that stillness of mind and being in the present moment. I can be more creative during my day. And creativity for a scientist is also for anyone is very important. So mm. I feel that that forty-five minutes in the morning of quieting the mind down helps me then move into my day with an equanimity and a sense of creativity that is um, so helpful. So one of the things you're suggesting is stay present in the moment, stay present in the now. But I mean, this is what yogis have been trying to teach forever. And I really think even, you know, every pastor is trying to get everybody just present in the spirit now of what they're reading or doing. Talk about what are some other ways we can focus our breath? I mean, it sounds like meditation is kind of the universal skill set. So people could probably go Google meditation and find a exactly. bunch of stuff on it. But what right. what are other ways? Well, so one thing I would say is that also um, being in nature is another way of really quieting your mind down. And a lot of people do their own, like what we might call a walking meditation in nature, where they're just focusing on their breath and being present as they're walking through nature. And it has an amazing ability to um, open your mind and help you relax and also really get in touch with your creativity. I think that Einstein talked about he would get some of his greatest ideas when he was out on a lake when he was sailing. Mm. And other scientists say the same thing, that that's when these amazing intuitions come to you. So I would say that it's not just sitting um, by yourself on a meditation mat or on a chair at home, but that's another beautiful way of connecting with the universe. And I find that when I'm walking, I almost have a sense that I can feel the energy of the trees and the plants hmm. around me and, and, and again, feel much more of that unity with the things around me. And it's, it's very nourishing. Oh, and... Because it's so lonely. This world without, without it is lonely. Yeah. Even your relationships with people you love, if you can't connect in that higher consciousness, they're still limited. Yes. I mean, I guess you're limited to just material. Yes, it's true. How do you see this? Um, what happens in the next few days um, or next few years or the next few decades when scientists begin to pick up more of this? Well, you know, the first thing that I wonder about is if scientists really understand the importance of 
for example, meditative states, and also the, the fact that we may have a vast potentiality of awareness that's open to us if we can begin to practice oh. it. They might start training children, you know, relatively young, like yeah. when they first get to school, about having curiosity about these things and also train them to quiet their minds and focus on their breaths. And I think if our society could um, really help educate young children, I think that we could really um, change our whole culture that way because we would also become more accepting of people with opposite at points of view, we'd be able to listen to them and say, maybe there's something in that person that can actually help me understand their point of view and then talk with them carefully about that. Oh. And I guess, too, I mean, and be enlightened by other people's points of view. Plus, imagine what would happen to anxiety, to depression, to other clinical issues that we're dealing with. Wow. Okay, Marjorie, we're going to have you back. I got to have you back. I got to pick your brain. Dr. Marjorie Wollacott's her name. Go find her book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Folks, the data is showing us there's more out there than your brain will allow you to see. And uh, it's clarifying spirituality as well. Stick with us. We will take a break. When we come back, our own Caitlin Thomas will be joining us talking about what is retro. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. And I realize that everything. Have you ever talked with someone uh, of a younger generation and then you heard them talk about vintage clothing or retro furniture? Because, you know, I have. Uh, I have all these young, what do we call you, millennials around me all the time. In fact, I hear it all the time here at the office. And so we've asked Caitlin Thomas, one of our producers, to come and enlighten us about what is retro as somebody that lived in many of these decades where we had all of this now vintage clothing. Yeah, retro. But... uh, what is retro? Well, see, I started thinking about this because I coach a drill team, a high school drill team, and tomorrow night they're performing at a basketball game, and yeah. it's the retro game. So the team wears old basketball outfits, and then the drill team gets to put on old costumes with you know, side ponytails, blue eyeshadow, and do a retro dance. Like old meaning like the 50s? No, old meaning like the, the 80s. Oh. Straight up. <laughs> that you doesn't know? And seem so, very old. But I'm always just laughing. Or just like anything, any yeah. any time period, anything that's old. But that's why I'm always laughing. I'm like, what exactly is retro? How does something get determined get... that it's retro? I think you just let it age. I guess I did some research, and it says that the word retro derives from the Latin prefix retro, meaning backwards or in past times. Going backwards, okay. So I would say maybe, what do you think, 10 years old at least. It can't be retro until it's 10 years old. Well, yeah. Now, is there a difference between retro and vintage? Because vintage, to me, seems like archaic. Yeah, that was another thing. What's retro and what's vintage? And So vintage, who- re- retro maybe 10 years, vintage... I would say vintage has to be longer than that. Yeah, Vintage actually uh, is Latin for more expensive. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's just one way. <laughs> but so, I mean, high side ponytails, leotards with l- bright leggings. Who decided that that is what was representative of the 80s? I don't oh, know. I think you just need to see the pictures. I Claw guess. bangs, leg warmers. Those are the trends. Like There had to have been more trends than that, but those nope. are the ones that, that came out. So what aspects of 2016-17 will be considered retro in 20 oh, years, Oh, interesting Matt? question. What what parts of my generation will be taken out and made retro in 20 years? Well, it's years? weird because so much of your generation is, is borrowing from, from past other generations. other generations. So, but what is unique about the 2016... 17 era. Huh. What, in 20 years, what will high school kids oh, be wearing know, to the retro Oh, I know, for game? sure. Um, stretch pants. What are they called? Oh, like jeggings? 
that what they're called? Jeggings? Or like yoga pants? Yeah, like yoga pants. There you go. Because that's big. I mean, I, I see people wearing yoga pants all over this campus. I'm wearing yoga pants oh, right now. Sorry. No I think offense. in 20 years, the Samsung Galaxy 7 will make a return. Oh, yeah. The mm-hmm. pocket fire, we called it. The iPhone? Because I bet in 20 years, people will just have chips in their arms, but it'll be retro to have like a phone that you yeah. hold in your hand. Look, oh, my heavens. Is that a phone? So what are they going to wear to the retro basketball game in They'll wear um, leggings. They'll wear yoga pants. Some shirt that hangs over. They'll tie really something around their t-shirts. waist. They'll have a flannel. A flannel, yeah. Definitely uh-huh. a flannel. And a furry coat hood. You're just describing my outfit right now. Yeah. <laughs> Rude. I just get out of I just got out of practice. Well, and I just saw Tom Brady is getting famous for hugging his wife, Giselle, and he's got a fur coat, like a fur hood on his Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about that. I was like, we have what and Converse have made a comeback. Maybe those will be retro. Big but, high you know, tops. Converse are retro, right? And they've totally made a comeback. So yeah, I don't, no, I see, have so no that's idea. borrowed. So that was borrowed from the sixties. Yeah, there's 50s nothing even. really original, no, is there? No. So that might tell you something about your generation. You need skinny to... jeans. Do you think these those uh, will be come back as super retro? I don't think they will. People have been wearing those for years. I don't see them ever leaving. But what do I know? Skinny jeans, I think, are something that you will look back at and think, uh, why did we do that? <laughs> I, those are the only jeans I wear. Oh, sorry. Matt. I don't mean to be That's rude. Okay. But, yeah, maybe skinny jeans and... I don't... Flannels? Flannel, but flannels was big back in the day. I don't know. Yeah, day. see, this was a really hard question for me to answer. No, I think you borrow a lot. You need to. You guys need to innovate. So is that all the next generations and will tech. do is It'll borrow? It'll be tech and yoga pants and skinny jeans. There's going to be a hike in lumberjack uh, occupation. There will totally as well, yeah. Mm. And the lumberjack workout CD that you brought me the other day, yeah, where there are guys wearing yoga pants and plaid. That'll totally be retro. Um, It's crazy. That's good to think about. And vintage again would probably be 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Vintage, and then you hit retro about 70s, 80s, 90s, and then prehistoric would obviously be you. Okay. Ooh, <laughs> that seemed to go really bad. And the music You've even been stopped. dissing on Perfect. me all yeah. day. So sorry. Hey, well done. Thanks, Caitlin, for You're walking welcome, us through retro and vintage. Mm-hmm. And again, for your generation, please. Leave go something good. Find something. Do something. Yeah. <laughs> different. I mean, different. Yeah. You are doing great mm-hmm. stuff. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What great news that intrinsically, inherently, we are good people and want to do good and want to to be good. And yet uh, so many of us seem to fight, you know, being good all the time. It's, it's a hard thing, and I'm, I'm going through it in my own uh, life where somebody you trust, somebody you care about, somebody that you've, you know, had close to you crosses you, does something that is so ugh, messed up. How do you not let that affect you the rest of your life? How do you not 
turn against society and turn against uh, humanity and think that everybody is just evil out to get you, to steal from you. How do you overcome that? Well, maybe one of the ways to do it is to, um, is to A, keep serving, keep giving. Keep uh, recognizing that there are good in the world. And as uh, Abigail Marsh told us, only about a third of the people would have the antisocial behaviors of not giving. Um, Two-thirds would be pro-social and pro-trying to care and trying to give. But it also one of the things I've learned is my need to give brings um, me peace personally. And my peace isn't contingent on other people giving to me necessarily. My peace is always contingent on me being a giver. So if I can continue to live the principles in my life that I believe in, I feel the peace. Even if other people around me might be harming me or trying to do things that harm me, I still can, um, can reap what I sow. And if I sow service and caring and taking care of others, then I will reap the peace and the benefit of doing that. It doesn't mean I won't go through life without problems or without people harming me or without people trying to do something. It does mean, though, that I will have peace. And in the end, in this world, when we're all after so much, in the end, the only thing that really might matter is the fact that we have lived a life of integrity and of moral character, and we have peace. And so I just challenge us that don't let someone else's lack of morality or lack of values drive your lack of values. Don't use their logic to become your logic because they hurt you. It's okay for you to hurt them. No, that's against your value system. I call that logical force. We're not going to use the logic of another person to override our moral system. I'm going to use my moral system to decide what I do, how, do I re- how I respond to the people around me that try to do harm, and how I respond with people that are harmful is with peace. doesn't mean I need to be taken advantage of. I still set boundaries, but I still live my principles, period. Then I reap the peace. Ah, and it's nice. It's nice to know you can be at peace. You can, you can have what you can have, the gift of peace, which comes by simply being the good in the world. And that's why we do the show, to keep motivating you, to keep giving you the ideas, the research, the latest insight into how to be the good in the world. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When we talk about objectifying ourselves, it, it is so interesting to think that if I can just make it about my body, even our health, I mean, our health how we measure it, how we objectify it, how we show what healthy looks like, it's always a hard body, right? It's always somebody in a gym. It's it's never about how that person feels or about your ability to go do more and be more. If you've ever felt a need to hide yourself, to hide your body, to hide your um, you know, your your belly, whatever it is, it's it's an indicator. It's a sign. And it, you you know what it feels like to shrink. We can't be shrinking violets in this world. Otherwise, what ends up floating to the top are a bunch of people that have mastered the objectification of other people. And we can't allow that. And I think that's what we're seeing with uh, all of these famous people, all of these political leaders, all of these, uh, you know, supposed 
leaders of our world who really are now in trouble for just being great at objectifying one another or selling the objectification. You know, or even they can take a stand that it's bad to objectify somebody, but hey, make sure you buy my lip product that makes your lips even more plump and supple. (laughs) Who cares? We are more than our bodies. We are more than even the thoughts behind all of our bodies. We are spiritual beings having having a human experience. One of my favorite quotes on earth by Teilhard de Chardin a Jesuit priest that said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. My friends, we are spiritual first and foremost. We've been spiritual beings before we got here. We will be spiritual beings after we're here. And we have spirit in us to guide us, to to lead us, and to help us make better decisions in our lives. We've got to figure out how to connect back into the spiritual side. And make it, and don't make it about everything else we make it about. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Oh, great. Now you have something to model me by? No, I'm a, I'm a child of God. Sorry. It's just what I am. Well, yeah, but are you black or are you white? Yeah, neither. Just a child of God. Male or female? <laughs> child of God. We're all something bigger. And as soon as we could recognize that in each other, then we can treat each other like children of God would treat children of God. I'm not trying to go all preachy on you, but it's real. And yet we, well, yeah, but your BMI says that you're, you're, you're obese. Oh, please. Great. How does that serve you? Well, because I, my BMI is lower than yours, so I just feel better about myself when I bring it up. I'm doing it for your health. Well, if you were doing it for my health, then try to somehow access my spirit too. Can you measure my spirit? Can you measure my sense of value? Can you measure what I feel? Can we talk about how I feel? Can we talk about what I'm able to do? And let's try to motivate me by what I can do and feel, not just my BMI. Anyway, not to rant on you, but please, let's figure it out, folks. There is something deep within each of us. And if we can tune into it, not just at Christmas, not just at Easter, not just once a week, when we go to a church or whatever, let's tune into it day in and day out, and we will start to solve some of the biggest issues of this world. I promise. A promise from Dr. Matt. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, this whole battle that we see going on in uh, in politics and really in life reminds me of a, a lesson I learned back in the day when I used to work uh, for, the, for Stephen Covey. And uh, he talked a lot about... Character ethic, he would call it, versus personality ethic. And he, what he did is he had studied um, a lot of uh, thought leaders, a lot of people um, that, that you know, were foundational to our country, foundational to our, um, our way of living here in the United States. And he found out that when they would discuss success and becoming successful, for years, for generations, we saw most of the success literature – for about the first 150 years of our country, would would say that you were successful if you if you could somehow grow character and have a character ethic, things like integrity, humility, simplicity, fairness, you know, modesty, love, courage, basic principles of character are the things that would drive you to have the most success. And um, then for about the last 50, now maybe about the last 80 or so years of our country. Uh, the 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 ethic the 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 way of living behind finding success has changed from 
character to more of what we would call personality ethic, where your appearance, your image, your look, um, you know, your ability to control and manipulate your way through and maneuver your way through life, that really is seen today as a as the key to being a successful person. Not your integrity, not your hard work, not lo- your loyalty, not all of these other principles, but a personality ethic. And the problem is that we're starting to run into is now we're finding out that uh, we might be swinging the pendulum back because we are tired of not being able to trust anything, not being able to understand, uh, having to to tell, you know, you know, it's it's you know, sure, sure, the person won the election, but we we question this about the person because people now can get elected. You can become famous. You can win a lot of money or make a lot of money and get a lot of money with no integrity, with no no work ethic even. It can just come to you. So it, it seems to be um, playing out. Stephen Covey's great worry that we have to make sure we continually teach this character ethic. And so Instead of just sitting there and bemoaning the fact of of every election you have to deal with or the political struggles you have, is there a way that you can be teaching your family about character ethic? Character ethic used to be natural because you were raised on a farm and, you know, raised in an agrarian society where you reap what you sow, you, you know, you, you receive what you work for. But now we live in a place and a time where your personality is enough to win it for you. But personality eventually will break down with a lack of character. And so let's get back to the character ethic. And what can you do? Simply believe in it. Teach it. Hold it accountable. Uh, win or die by your character and, and maybe give up the, the politics of personality and the manipulations of personality ethic instead of just trusting in character, integrity, humility, some of the old-fashioned traits. I know they seem old-fashioned, but in the end, they also are – uh, they're they're successful long term, and we might be creating some some monsters by simply allowing personality to succeed so much. Anyway, uh, you can find out more about that if you just go read the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or you know, the Bible, or the Quran, the Talmud, any of those old reads. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I spend a lot of time in my life and in my everyday uh, interactions working with people that are that that tend to be out of sync with each other Um, in my coaching business we we really spend a lot of time with couples and businesses and business owners in how to get in sync and it's not an easy thing especially you look at the tax laws like we have congress and senate totally out of sync and that makes sense right large bodies everybody's been uh somehow was elected by a constituency that has expectations so One of the things I wanted to do is – and one of the things we try to do on the show is always bring it back to your life and how – and things you can do for you and your your family. Some rules here for how to get back in sync with your spouse. Um, I've I've seen it even in my own marriage, in my own life. Uh, Lots of – you know, over years of me being a small business owner – uh, my wife and I could easily get on different pages where she couldn't understand what was going on in the business. I didn't understand what her complaint was about going what was going on in the business. And so recently we found a way to actually get more involved by getting her more involved in the business. And, uh, you know, some are like, Ugh, how's that going? But it's going really well, quite honestly. The more we know, the more informed we are. 
um, the, the better off I think we all can be. And so here are some other rules I've learned about uh, increasing your connectivity and getting in sync with each other. First and foremost, count the bars of your connectivity. How many times have you lost a call and the minute you lose the call, you immediately then check the how many bars you have um, on your service, right? You're, you have to now see, oh, no wonder we lost it because I only have one bar. Uh, it might be better that we check the bars as we're communicating. And so start checking in with each other and finding out how are we? are we. Are we on the same page here? By the way, one way to detect that is if you notice a lot of negative emotion, if you notice a lot of mistrust and a lot of misinformation and, com- and confusion. Anytime you, you notice those signs, those are the signs that connectivity is down. Negative emotion. So if you're starting to fight with each other, misunderstand each other and not trust each other, you probably ought to slow down, make sure we go get our bars up and start connecting and communicating in a better way. Another thing you could do is identify what is the interference. What's stopping you from being able to communicate with your partner? Is it simply, you know, is it just that we're running around too much? Is it that we never actually are talking eye to eye? Is it that we're doing all of our communication through text? There is going to be more and more uh, noise, they call it, in the channel if we if we don't have a clear signal, if we're not – if we don't increase as many ways as we can to make sure the message is understandable. Do, you know, do you keep if – if you've ever gone inside a building and you couldn't uh, – your phone wasn't working because you're in the middle of a building, you have to eliminate some of that interference. And you'll notice what you do is you start walking more toward the outside of the building. You'll go stand near a window. You'll do anything you can to decrease the the interference that's coming from those walls. The same is true in your marriage. Sometimes you need to get closer to each other, start walking closer to each other, be closer to each other, and remove some of the walls that are between you and your partner. Another rule, fairly basic one, is you probably need to make sure you have the skills and the tools to connect. Uh, more and more, I just did it with my Wi-Fi in my business. I tried to change a password, and it messed up the entire thing. And then I was without Wi-Fi in my office for a few days until I could figure out how to make that work because I don't have the tools to change my Wi-Fi. I don't know how to do it. So I had to go spend some time learning how to do it. And once I've learned how to do it, now I can do it going forward. Each of us needs more skills, more tools. Um, there's a simple rule about five hours a week of basically spending five hours uh, a week reading, reflecting, experimenting. That's a rule by Michael Simmons, um, who just basically says he tries to learn something, you know, five hours a week. And uh, why not? Man, that seems to help, right? Other people that are doing it are Warren Buffett, Oprah. They spend a lot of time learning. Uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, they're constantly learning. Another rule, turn up your receivers. At some point, don't always assume it's a signal problem because the, the transmitter is not transmitting. Make sure the receiver is on. Make sure you are tuned in and paying attention to your partner as well. And finally, <clears throat> keep testing. And when you lose connection, try again and see if it's happening yet and keep testing and keep testing and keep testing until we get connected. A lot of times in our – we do that with our cell phone, right? If we really have to get a call out, we will keep – how about now? How about now? Is it working now? How about now? But in our marriages, sometimes I've noticed we give up way too easily. If we can't communicate, if we're not understanding each other, a lot of times we just are done and we walk away. 
You can't do that in a long-term relationship. If you want to make it work, let's just start showing each other, I'm committed. I'm committed to being connected to you and to keep learning and to keep trying. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today's breakneck, breakneck pace of change has an immense impact on leaders and as a result on the organizations that they're running. Imagine trying to run a leader in the midst of all of these changes, globally, environmentally, economically. All too often, people remain stuck in outdated mindsets and modes of operating, even after others recognize the need to change. Erminia Ibarra is the author of the book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. She's here with us today um, to teach us about some of ways that we can, you know, rethink or reformulate uh, some leadership thoughts and uh, hopefully use those thoughts to develop better strategies as a leader. We're so honored to have you, Erminia. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm very thrilled to be here. Now, you um, you have a lot of experience in leadership uh, just through your your work at Harvard and teaching at Harvard, but also just organizational uh, leadership. What, what is it? Because today's day and age, we, we can't use even the paradigms we learned 20 years ago in business school probably wouldn't work today, would they? Probably not. Probably not. One of the things that has changed a lot is just the complexity of the problems that we face and the extent to which you really need to tackle them through a variety of different specialty fields and disciplines. So it's it's very, um, our boundaries are very porous. It's very hard to get anything done within the context of a small group or even the confines of an organization. What um, what drove you to, to work on the book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader? Well, uh, very simply, Matt, teaching executives um, for years and years, all who were facing the same kind of issue, being a very successful and very good um, specialty expert, uh, you know, a marketing leader, uh, a finance person, um, somebody, a fantastic operations engineer, uh, and really struggling, uh, wanting to have broader organizational impact, but really struggling to make the transition to leading um, across the lines and to leading either at a higher level or, in fact, just simply uh, leading beyond their immediate knowledge base and discipline. Hmm. Because that's what we do, right? If I have a marketing director that's incredible, I want to promote them to be a vice president. But that doesn't always work. Just because I'm really good at a specialty task doesn't mean I know how to be an organizational leader. Yeah, you know, that's the classic problem, and it still exists. Um, But it's not just a problem um, when you get promoted into a senior role. Even if you stay where you are, and this gets back to your initial point, even if you stay in that marketing role, organizations are trying very hard not to work as silos. And the only way you can really add value and maybe get yourself considered for that future promotion um, is, is, is by changing the way that you work now and not when you have kind of moved up into your Peter principles. 
Mm. Is it – I mean because I guess to determine if uh, your leadership skills and abilities work, it's it's got to be about results, right? But you, you need more than just the result today. Don't you have to be getting results that also can help others get results today as well as being able to get the same results tomorrow or better? <laughs> you confused me a little bit there. Um, <laughs> I think part of what you're talking about is the difference between performance and potential. You can perform and get fantastic results doing the same old, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you will get equally good results and perform as well in a very different role that requires a different skill set. Mm. So, you- so that's you know that's a big issue. The, the other thing is, quite frankly, the only way we learn how to do new things is by trying them when we don't know how to do them very well. And there's always going to be some immediate hit to your um, at least very short-term results. And that's the chance both people and their bosses and their organizations have to take if they want to develop people's leadership capacity. It is So leadership, um, I, I, a lot of times it seems like we're telling people that you're kind of born a leader, it's a natural trait. But you're you're almost talking more like it's skills. It's too, it's something we can learn and change. Yes, absolutely. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever that you're born a leader or not. You might be born more extroverted and perhaps more outgoing or even loud and outspoken. Um, but that is far from being the full basket of things that you need to lead. Yeah, talk about some of the the leadership. Uh, skills or tools that we we need to kind of work on to to make sure we're acting like a leader and we're thinking like a leader? Well, um, working with other people is pretty much the basic thing. Um, And that usually means working with people who are different from you in terms of their backgrounds and their um, educational uh, background and their uh, interests. Uh, being able to have conversations with them, hard conversations, being able to exchange feedback, uh, being able to understand what's going on with them. Um, those are very basic human qualities that are very critical for leaders. Um, it's a set of soft skills uh, that we tend to talk about that have to do with being able to tune in to people. But there's another basket that sometimes doesn't get as much publicity, which has to do with being able to think strategically and see what's going on in the bigger, broader world so that you can make decisions and set direction and, and um, select and choose how you spend your time on the things that are going to matter most to the future of the organization. Yeah. Is, um, I, I guess, what the, it's so interesting because you're not a leader, I guess, if you don't have people that are bought into following you, if they don't trust you, if they, if they don't understand what you need them to do. Um, you so the people skills are there do, do you do you see a difference in just generations do you see anything uh different about maybe the millennials or the x gen versus the older kind of leadership gen or style yeah i think i think it's a little bit overdone you know i i think all of us are really wanting the same kinds of things to have work that has meaning um to have um uh some kind of balance in our lives as opposed to just working around the clock. You know, they're pretty basic human needs that everyone uh, has. Uh, Sometimes the millennials are just a little louder about it. And because they are younger, not because they are millennials, they're more likely to leave if the job and the company doesn't suit them because they don't yet have 
all of the things that make us stay stuck and things that we no longer want to do, like mortgages and family mm-hmm. depending on us. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think it's a lot about being a millennial. I think it's a lot about being um, about being young and more outspoken about what matters. Yeah. In fact, um, you you in a lot of your research, you 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 kind of created a concept you call outsight. Talk about that. What what do you mean by outsight? So outside is a way of contrasting um, how we learn. Um, there's two ways. One way of learning is by introspecting and reflecting on who you are and what you want to do and who you want to be and what matters to you. And that can be very valuable, uh, but it definitely anchors you on what you've done in the past. Um, when you're moving into things that are kind of new arenas, you actually don't have any kind of internal base for really um, – deciding and figuring out whether it's for you or not until you try it and until you get some what I call outsight, which is the fresh perspective you get from doing new things and interacting with new and different kinds of people. Um, It's kind of um, just simply uh, going outside the box. Hmm. And and, and gathering insights into something you don't understand, something you don't know. And uh, so I guess this is it seems like, uh, in your mind, a pivotal uh, principle of leaders moving forward is the ability to to go to those places unknown to them and gather new vision. Yes, because we pigeonhole ourselves. We assume, oh, no, I wouldn't like that because I'm introverted, or, oh, no, I can't do that because I'm this. Um, and, in fact, it, it, may not, it may not be true because we see from people who get thrown into things that are not their natural calling, that they um, they oftentimes surprise themselves. Mm. Do you sense we do that a lot? I mean, I see it in my own consulting work that a lot of times we'll use some assessment, you know, and they're great in a way, but they also do pigeonhole us. You know, I'm an introvert. I I I, I like to learn certain ways. I But I it also maybe, yeah, gets me to a point where I don't try new things. Exactly. I agree with you on that. And it's um, again, but if our if our organizational development experts are telling us, yeah, you need to know if you're highly sensitive or introverted, or but there's more to that. Even the introvert needs to feel uncomfortable once in a while. I mean, I guess part of that is being a leader too, right? Is being able to sit in discomfort, make sense of it. Well, I think it's how you you're going to feel discomfort one way or another in the world in which we live, and it's an issue of how you interpret that discomfort. Are you going to interpret that as, oh, if this is not me, let me you know stick to what I know, or are you going to interpret it as, oh, I'm learning, I don't have this yet, so it's going to feel uncomfortable, and if you can do more of the latter, um, you'll learn more and develop more your capacity to lead. Hmm. Learning and leaderships, hand in hand, it sounds like. Um, let's take a break. We are speaking with er- Erminia Ibarra, and she is walking us through um, her book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion about outsight. Uh, in fact, giving you some more tools about how you can experience things you're not used to and let it uh, influence your thinking and your leading. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about how to act like a leader, think like a leader. That is a book by Erminia Ibarra, and uh, she uh, was was the Cora Chaired Professor of Leadership and Learning and Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSED. And uh, also prior to INSED, she served on the Harvard Business School faculty for 13 years. She was uh, ranked one of the top 50 thinkers, number eight, in fact, among the most influential business gurus in the world. So, Erminia, we're honored to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Just correct a little bit. It's INSEAD. It's INSEAD. Uh, business school. Yep. Is it? Because um, you did a lot of work uh, teaching business, you know, business leaders. Is that where your, uh, your work on uh, Act as a Leader came from? Yes, it is. And yes, it is. Instead, it's an international school that's based in France and in Singapore, and it also in Abu Dhabi. Huh. And uh, we teach people from all over the world in English only. That's neat. Is um, you you then mentioned last uh, before the break about this outside principle that we need to somehow. It's one thing to use the insight we have from what we already know, but at times we need to go outside of ourselves and find new information, new ideas, new experiences to influence us. In the model, I know you break it down into th- actions that we have to take as a leader, and three of the actions are they're about redefining your job, your network, and yourself. What, talk to us about those. What do you mean, um, and, and how do we go about doing that? Right. Um, so I'll, I'll take them one by one. Yeah, please. Um, those are the ones. The first one is how do you redefine your job? Um, the best way to learn is on the job. It's not by taking a course or reading a book. And so if you really want to learn some new skills, you need to tweak your job or how you define your job so it creates a ground in which you can experiment um, with uh, some new behaviors. Um, oftentimes we define our jobs by focusing on what is what our boss absolutely <laughs> needs us to do, and then the rest of it is what we really enjoy what we enjoy most is what we're best at, and so those are not necessarily learning opportunities. And so I advise people to redefine their jobs by looking for nooks and crannies in the organization where they can sign up for a project or a task force or something that exposes them to different people, different ideas, different ways of working, and you can do that extracurricularly as well by um, working with a professional association or an industry group or anything, even... even um, a community organization that will put you in a different role um, and then allow you to practice uh, skills that you don't necessarily practice in your day job. And, and then so that, in the time, it sounds like your giant, your job, it starts changing as, as you change, as you grow and gain more outside. Yeah. Well, as you gain more outside, especially, say, if you're kind of out talking to people in different parts of your organization, it will necessarily give you ideas about better things or more value-added things you can do within your group. So it will definitely change not just how you think, but what opportunities you can take advantage of. Hmm. Love that. Uh, And then you say redefine your network? Well, as well, most of us have networks. You know, we're kind of busy and we, we kind of go on default mode. And so most of us have networks that are made up of the usual suspects, people we've known for a long time, who are in our work group, who we see regularly. And that's not a network that stretches our mind. And it's also not a network that allows us to contribute a lot because um, 
they're the usual suspects. And so if you actually start tweaking your job to extend beyond the usual work that you do, you will find lots of uh, new people to meet and networks to tap into that will feed your ideas and will feed your innovativeness and, um, you know, even expand your sense of who you are and what you might do in the future. Because, hmm. I mean, really, it's it, it's back to relationships and uh, other experiences. Um, you uh, also dis- discussed that we should redefine ourselves. Well, what, the way I'd like to talk about it is be more playful with your sense of self. And, and this gets back to what I mentioned earlier. We tend to pigeonhole ourselves as this kind of person or that kind of person, and it keeps us from exploring other things we might do. Um, being more playful with your sense of self is another way of saying getting out of the comfort zone and trying things um, that may not feel very comfortable, may not feel very authentic, may not feel very you uh, at the present time, but again, provide opportunities for learning. We've, we've seen, and, and we discussed this a lot on the show about kind of the need, at least in the United States, and I think it's globally, that nowadays with technology, we we really can stay in our bubble. In fact, the technology actually enhances our bubble, and we only have to listen to the things we want to listen, read the things we want to read, do what feels comfortable for us. Um, And I think that's human nature, kind of natural, not to – we don't necessarily always want to be slapped down or overreach. But is – do you – this out – this outsight idea – Seems like something every human being could do, right? And I mean, I guess that really is, it's almost like we're reframing leader as everyone. What would you recommend to um, a leader, uh, I guess anywhere, because again, this is a global issue that we're dealing with, to, to be able to open the doors more and to be able to be more inclusive? How, how do they get others to do it? You you can't really get others to do it until you've done it yourself. I mean, let me backtrack to your earlier question. Um, in, in certain ways, we can all be leaders. I mean, you can define a leader as somebody in a formal position, or you could define a leader as somebody who has uh, influence on um, some collective goal. And so in that sense, all of us can be leaders, and all of us can get better at developing our capacity to influence and impact positively a goal that the collectivity cares about. So in that sense, all of us can be. Um, In terms of inclusivity, it's very hard to advocate that if you don't do it yourself. Mm. And it's a well-known fact that most of us have friends and networks that are very similar to who we are because, you know, that's that's how people click. Um, We want people who share our values and who share... um, a number of things that we have in common, but that's quite limiting. And so that's one of the reasons why a place to begin is by broadening out your network. You can't be inclusive in, unless you are. Yeah, and yeah, because you can't know what you don't know. And it's like you have to press on the edges of your your understanding. Um, a lot of us, too, it seems like we – this is about, I, you know, redefining is the word you use – our identity in a way almost. We have to redefine how I look at my job, what my job is. But it's, it almost sounds like we need to make sure that we don't um, – that we keep more malleable borders where we allow other ideas in that instead of being so afraid of the ideas. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, well, well, I'm, you, you're working with clients, teaching them to be a leader, teaching them 
to go after outside and to integrate it into their lives. How have you seen this change the businesses that they're leading? Um, what are some examples you can give us of the people you work with? Well, um, I can't give you individual examples, but um, in, in some cases it helps them um, help their businesses uh, collaborate more effectively across the silos and across the lines. Uh, in other cases, it helps them figure out that they're in the wrong place and that they need to move elsewhere in order to fully develop their leadership. Mm. Yeah, and innovate, right? Because, I mean, it's not going to be the same tomorrow, so we probably need to be cutting it and uh, doing whatever we can to to innovate and to create uh, better results. Well, we appreciate your time. Erminia Ibarra is her name and the book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. Interesting insight, that whole concept of outsight. It's one thing to know something about what you know. It's another thing to go, how do you go into those darker areas, those dark regions of our knowledge and start, you know, pushing in there? Interesting stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, do a little Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. As we just learned about the concept of outsight, um, looking into the dark, you know, not like the negative dark, but the unknown, it's hard. Businesses have got to stay alive. So they got they can't just keep, you know, recreating the same thing. And a great example of this is Oreo. Yes. Oreo has reached into a dark corner of the universe – to pull out another product. Some people think they try to innovate too much. Maybe they overreach. They, they're overdoing it. Because some of their, their flavors they come up with are really <laughs> quite gross. Give me an example of what's happening now with Oreo. Well, this is happening in England. It's always it's not in the United States. Well, they test it elsewhere. and yeah. Then they bring it home. Then they bring it home if it's, if it's good enough. The, the Cadbury egg mm. in the UK is something... Very special in yeah. their society. Yeah, don't mess with it. It is like they, they there's a whole different chocolate that they that yeah. they have versus what we have. Theirs is apparently tastes better. They have a real it egg is. center. Ours is more, <laughs> I guess, watered down. I don't know what you would say, mm-hmm. but it says uh, that the creme egg is one thing that can't be approved on. Improved it's on perfect. this article says the wonderfully thick chocolatey shell with that tantalizingly sweet fondant center with an e. The you know, C-E-N-T-R-E is just beautiful. Seeing those little purple and red foiled nuggets of happiness on sale in January is possibly mm. one of the only things that gets you through the winter blues. Mm-hmm. The creme egg is one of, and it just goes on and on about how great this is. But now what they've just revealed is there's a new Oreo flavored Cadbury egg. Really? And it's the creme egg? You get the same chunky shell. Mm-hmm. Only this time packed with delicious Oreo cream and cookie center. Yes. I, I'm going to give it three thumbs up. And instead of the terrible foil that come, you know, the, yeah. the, you the foil you the just foil. peel off. These eggs come in some futuristic plastic cup construction with no doubt protects the egg from all potential bumps and cracks. So it is an Oreo phone. cookie shell. Yeah, it, so you have the same chocolate shell. Inside is a cream cookie center. Packed wow. in a plastic 25-cent Easter egg 
Oh, I, I'm okay. on board. I think it's a great idea. Cup covering instead of the foil covering that normally comes with it. So, mm. it's uh, on sale in Canada. Has been chomping away on these for at least a year. But the point is that you can now get your hands on them in the UK. No word on if they're coming here. And as has been uh, true in the past, uh, they won't. We never get things. Those sound so amazing, though. I'll try it. If they if they want to be a sponsor on the show, we're willing. We're more than willing. I would buy it for myself. I would buy it for my coworkers. I would offer it as a peace offering. I'd buy one for every finger on my hand. <laughs> Usually you can get this kind of stuff on uh, Amazon, eBay. Oh, you can still do that. Yeah. I bet you Amazon could. There is, there is Amazon.uk mm. if they'll do that. Um, another story I found, cruises. Have you been on a cruise? Love cruising. You've, have you given a speech on yes, a cruise? Yes, I've taken groups okay. on cruises. Jeff, have you been on a cruise? I've been on two cruises. I know you said you're trying to set one up with your whole family. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's Cruise M. Cruise M is cruise plural. M. Okay, cruise sorry. Cruise I. Yeah. I also have been on a cruise. It They're was incredible. It was fun. Yeah. No, no sickness. No one fell off the boat. That's the story. Everything's you good. Hear. Lots of food. Um, there are themed cruises that are out there. They're uh-huh. kind of interesting if you want to get uh, involved in those. This one, uh, a meow cruise. Meow. You can bring your cat. And why? Uh, why? Well, it says sadly, this is weird because it says, sadly, no feline friends are permitted on the cruise, but guests can swap stories and tips and show photos of their of their fluffy to their heart's delight. So you go with other cat lovers to talk about your cat, but you don't bring your cat. Okay, so you know what this means. Then obviously the cruise is going nowhere. It's like <laughs> it's a cruise that has no really beautiful destination. I think they serve cat Actually, food to their guests uh, too. It goes from Tampa, Florida, four nights, a stop in Cozumel, Mexico. And you, and you don't bring you, your you, cat. You, you just, just talk, talk about, about it. Yeah. Another one is a freedom cruise. Okay. Uh, you can go with Newt Gingrich and his wife. Okay. Um, Oliver North will be there. Oh, wow. Um, there's some Fox News people, I believe, they are going to be on the boat. Can you talk about a cat on that cruise? Um, pro- probably. Probably. I think the freedom comes in when they let you leave so at you, the end. You go on the cruise, they'll have panel discussions, lectures, and okay. lots of elbow rubbing with potential celebrity political type people. Oh, wow. So yeah, th- then you'd be in the know. You'd be on the inside. Another one's uh, titled 70,000 Tons of Metal. It's a heavy metal cruise. Oh, boy. So you can listen to heavy metal music. That I don't could think be though, cool, I guess. It's mainly um, – Karaoke and belly flop contests. You know, that sounds mm. like Don right there. Uh, it sounds like a lot of cover bands. And a lot of belly flop. Yeah. Um, the quilt seminar at sea. You can go on the cruise and Ooh. quilt. Wow. Um, it's a four. It says rock stars in the world of quilting will be on board to teach classes and even sign autographs. That's cool. Don't forget so, your loom. It, you'll go to Juneau, Alaska and Victoria, British Columbia, so it's pretty. That's beautiful. It's in the summer. See, the political um, one, you know, you're taking people you can't stand on TV and you can't get away from them for a week on a cruise. No, but right. those people would love them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Star Trek cruise. Oh, boy. So it's like a Trekkie conference yeah, that put on a be boat. Great. Um, what's this one? The uh, If you want to find, this one's called the Conspiracy Cruise. Ah, cute. So you got, uh, if you want to discuss crop circles, chemtrails, and who shot JFK, Go on a week-long cruise. See, and that would be fun. You can talk to people <laughs> that would about it. Your... <laughs> so much fun. Do you want to see where they implanted the chip? Not really. Yeah. Thanks, though. So, yeah, conspiracy There's my cruise. chip scar right there. Do you want to hear about the night I was abducted by aliens? Yes. I wonder if they have a conspiracy cat cruise. You could probably still talk about your cats on Did that cruise Did you guys cruise hear also. what happened to my cat? 
I just thought that was odd. There's a whole cruise. Crazy. You don't bring your cat. Yeah. But you get to talk about your cat. I would do the conspiracy out of all of those. I think I'd do the quilting myself. Be very quiet. I pleasant. would just be testing all the quilts. Just take naps. Professional tester. Well done, Terry. We will take a break, my friends. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and cruise to the horizon. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Isn't it interesting that uh, you can see anything you want to see in history and you can hear any anything you want to hear? It really is. Uh, it's it's the attribution error. We can basically make anything, we can attribute any meaning to anything. That is the neat thing about being a human being. It's also, if you're not careful, it's it really is the beginning of uh, disillusionment and a bunch of manipulation. But we do it. And I guess part of it is, it's one thing when it becomes part of the political world. It's another thing when we are just doing it to each other. Remember, we, we negatively interpret each other because it serves us. Somehow we feel, I guess, safer if I can think of you as a dangerous person than um, necessarily thinking you of you as a safe person. So the minute you violated any trust with me, my, my tendency will be to interpret what you do, who you are negatively. I won't look for all the data you bring to the equation. I'll only look for the negative data. Every one of us does this. And uh, so the, the example I always give is if you go to the um, – if you are bit by a snake in the garden, then the next time you go back to the garden, you are not looking for tomatoes. You are not looking for beautiful roses. You are looking for snakes. If you see the garden hose, guess what it is to you? It's a snake. If you see the rake in the middle of the garden, what is it? It's a snake. Anything that can hurt you – or anything that you see would be tainted by the history of low trust. And so when we have a Lincoln, uh, and what an interesting way to get the history of Lincoln is from the people that knew him as a child, the people that saw a little you know story here, a little story there. So a lot of his stories add up to be very, very positive. And you know when the majority of the stories are positive and the and there's fewer negative uh, interpretations of the person, in the end, the outcome will probably be fairly positive. And we do it. We do it with Lincoln. And it's interesting, too, how our leaders pick and choose. You know, they, they pick and choose the parts of history that, that they want to replicate. But think about it in your case. How do you want to be remembered? And and what what are the remnants, using our last guest's words, Sean's words, that, that will make up your life? What are the stories that will be your part of your mosaic? And do those matter to you? Do you know overall what you want the mosaic of your life to be? Can you imagine? He had no idea he was going to be shot that night. Lincoln didn't. And yet he had enough mosaic uh, and enough stories of the positive sort that created a pretty powerful, iconic person. Not perfect, apparently. Apparently, he tried to sneak out of his court hearings <laughs> as an attorney. It's kind of funny. Who knew about that? 
Anyway, uh, interesting stuff. And again, when if if we put a if we put a really big spotlight on every one of us, mo- most of us would probably not make it through in a very perfect, clean way. So we also have to be careful of that. But think about it. You get to make up your life. You also get to interpret how others are seen. And um, be careful that you're not overly uh, being creative in how you make up somebody. Uh, There are people, I think, in our world, even in our political world, that uh, I think we just keep only looking at the one thing we like and maybe overlooking other parts. But let's try to also see people as wholes. They've got a whole life, right? They don't they, – they have the good, the bad, and the ugly. And let's not pretend that everything is always just perfect and rosy. And let's not make sure – let's not make everything skewed negative. That's why I think there's such an argument going on about fake news because, you know, President Trump would think everybody's only pointing out the negative And there are some positive things that are happening and they're being done in a way that maybe isn't – they're not always as positive as they could be. So – there is a way that we all can be right here, right? There's not only one right and one wrong. Anyway, a little Coach's Corner for you, hopefully uh, helping us all be a little bit better in how we interpret and see the world. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, uh, this uh, this whole idea of our parenting, we got to be so careful. And there's some there's some beliefs that I think that a lot of us carry as parents that maybe need to be pushed on a little bit. Um, I, I see a lot of clients, a lot of parents come in and they want me to air quote, fix their kids. Um, but let me just blow up a few thoughts that parents have that maybe we need to be abandoning. Um, one of them was just uh, basically touched on by our last guest um, when it comes to this idea of pay and play sports and getting our kid and getting a lot of psychic income off of our kid's game. Uh, one of the beliefs is that parents can live vicariously through their child. And can I just blow that up? Um, The mere fact that you may want your child to get to a college program, that you may want the psychic income of being able to say they're a collegiate athlete or that you want them to live out the dream that you were never able to do, because you could do that, I guess, vicariously, doesn't mean you should. And I think in the end, if you're not careful, you're going to end up just creating more problems for your child. Uh, But another belief I think that we we really need to – to work to kind of stop um, is this idea of if I don't push my children hard now, they will never amount to anything. That idea is, I think, false, absolutely false. And so, because because a child makes a mistake today doesn't mean they're going to have permanent problems tomorrow. People make mistakes, and people grow up, and eventually, developmentally, they're going to get to a completely different stage of life where those mistakes won't maybe uh, – they'll outgrow some of those ideas, some of those mistakes. And so be careful of having too much intensity about your children not being good enough right now, not being on the right team, not being strong enough as athletes because your intensity is actually creating, I think, some complexity and also some anxiety for your children. Back off. Back off because it's not going to get easier by them thinking they're already a failure at age 12 because they didn't make a team or 18 or 19 because they had an injury. Life's just beginning for these kids at this age. And the last thing parents need to do is create a complex for their children. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We talk about lying. It's really easy to uh, beat up our politicians for it Um, more and more. I mean, I really think what President Trump is doing is he's just shining a big 
a really enormous spotlight on a problem we've always had, which is which our last guest just talked about. The idea of lying is it's very subjective, right? And we, we're going to find the lie that fits the belief system that we that we have. So, but here's a bigger question, I think, that you might want to look at. How are you doing in the honesty department in your own life? How honest and true are you? And is honesty always the best policy? Um, I'd be careful. We, I mean, I love the idea. I love the I, the thought of honesty is the best policy. One problem is um, sometimes, you know, if, you're, if your wife or your spouse says, hey, do I look fat in this outfit or these clothes? They may not be going for honesty. Sometimes they may be going for just reassurance, compassion, you know, love, um, positivity. So we can be honest, but you can also, you know, might be missing the deeper point. But when it comes to each and every one of us in our lives, how honest are we really? Uh, Some of the things that we lie for and lie about – uh, we have a lot of great justification, right? So sometimes we'll lie to spare our partner's feelings. We lie to make ourselves look good or feel good. Uh, we lie to show that we're better than we are. We lie to keep the peace sometimes. Um, but in the end, what all of those might be is are just facts that you, you're lying because you don't know any other way to do it. So you may not want to default to the lie, not just because you're going to get caught, not because it's just immoral and unethical, because, but it might also be that you lie because you don't have the tool set. You don't have a broad enough set of skills to be able to find another way to handle this situation. Uh, some of the things that we lie about in our relationships, our past, past relationships, we lie about how, we, how and when we spend our money. We lie about indiscretions and sins that are going on in our relationships, weaknesses or imperfections. We lie a lot of times when our egos are threatened, when, this, when our identity is now up in question. I've had clients that hadn't had a job for six months, pretended to go to work every day, and then their spouse found out that they were lying. I had a, a client once that was playing video games at a university for about a year. <laughs> doing really well in the video game world, but never went to class, but was still running up charges and, um, you know, lied for a year about attending school. And it's, think about it, how devastating that is to our trust, to our relationships. But uh, most importantly, I guess, think about you. We can get mad at all the candidates in the world. We can get mad at politicians and Washington. But are you being honest in your, in your life? Are you being honest emotionally? Are you, are you real with your feelings? Do you share your feelings? When you're down and you're bummed and you're frustrated and your spouse says, what's wrong? And you're like, nothing, I'm fine. Do you go play that game? Or do you know how to share your emotions with others? Uh, are, you, are you honest about your history, <laughs> your past? Um, remember, you're probably less likely to get over your past, move on from your past, Take your past into a new future if you're not going to be more honest with yourself. Are you honest about your present-day reality? You know, there's a million situations out there that that can be going on in your business life, in your social life, in your spiritual life. And if you're not honest, then you're you're just not ever going to deal with or get out of the problem. And are you honest about your future? Do you ever lie about You're listening to the your best future of the life. Matt Townsend show. Yes, you know, someday we're going to retire and we'll be able to go get a house in Tahiti. Well, 
Maybe not if you're not putting any money away in your in your 401k. Maybe retirement's just a big lie. So if we could maybe align to some more uh, what they call radical honesty, it, it might be a little healthier for all of us. And again, be more honest about your own political views. It sometimes it's hard if if a candidate is lying and is not representing your values. It may not matter at all if they're in the GOP or they're in the Democratic Party, right? So quit lying that it matters which party they're in um, because if they're lying, they're lying. And uh, it's too easy to say, well, I'll just vote for them because we really need to get a Democrat in there or we need to really get a Republican in there. Instead, it might be really powerful if all of us stand up and start demanding a little more character from our elected officials and maybe more importantly from ourselves. Just a little thought from Dr. Matt. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This week we, we've heard a lot of stories about um, you know sexual misconduct, um, issues going on with our legislators, the election to be coming up soon in Alabama. And uh, my kids, I've actually had some interesting conversations with my children about what's going on. And I, a lot of them are like, so, I mean, you know, didn't didn't this person, didn't this person sexually harass somebody? And didn't this person say this? And what about this? And so what I found is I I have to sit down with them and and help them clarify a few rules, because it seems like what we're doing in the press and in our politics is we're playing with everybody's playing with different rules. And uh, I wonder if that's why we misspeak and we overtalk each other and no one listens is because uh, what I found is there's four different sets of rules that we can use to live our lives by. Okay, one set of rules is we just do what comes natural. We just we just do whatever we whatever feels good for us. Eat, drink, and be merry, you know, survive, mate, have fun, avoid pain, maximize pleasure, do what's natural to you. And some people just live life, you know, that way, in a very just natural way. It's all about you and getting what you want. That's one level of living. Another level or standard of living is just do what everyone else is doing. So, you know, I may want to, you know, do what comes natural, but, you know... Ah, I don't know, but my friends do too, so I just do what my friends want to do. You, if we just live our lives by what everyone else is doing, then I guess, you know, in some ways it doesn't matter what our values and our principles are because I'm just going to follow the standard of everyone else. Now, another set of rules isn't what's natural and it's not what everyone else is doing. Some of them are just we, – all we try to do is just live the laws of the land. And a lot of people hold up the laws of the land as the highest form of human being that we can live, right? We're maximizing our life by living the laws of the land. And I just suggest I love the law. I love it. Live it as much, you know, live it, live it. It's part of your our responsibility here. But be careful because laws tend to change. Remember, there used to be a time where women didn't have the right to vote by law. They just didn't have that right. And uh, minorities, African-Americans were legally okay to be owned as slaves. So laws can also change. Um, But to me, there's a higher level than doing what's natural, doing what everyone else does, or just following the laws of the land. And what I'm trying to teach my kids is it's time that we might want to live by a higher principle, uh, live by our conscience, let our conscience be our guide, try to do things that are moral, They may not always make you popular, I try to teach my kids. 
So right now, pushing back on some of the immorality that we see uh, going on might make us feel like, um, you know, we're, we're not as popular. It might be easier to just go along with the flow and do what everyone else is doing. But there is a higher standard and a higher level. And I found that once you start to realize how we're supposedly uh, living – um, and don't we don't I shouldn't have to trust what people are saying about how they're living. I can see it in their life. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of these stories that are coming out is people were living supposedly one law, following the land or following the principle and their conscience of their heart. And but we knew deep down what they were doing is just what comes natural. And we got to change. We got to be different on that tone. And we got to teach our children that you got to choose the rules you're going to live by. And I would suggest We push more principles and conscience. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, less than 1% of American adults today are proficient in a foreign language that they studied uh, in a U.S. classroom. Think about how many different people are coming to America, and do you know any other language other than English? And Pig Latin, of course. Joining us uh, to talk about the importance of and benefits of learning a second language, Professor Amy Thompson, who is uh, an associate professor of linguistics at the University of South Florida, is here to uh, to share with us some insight about the benefits and the increased tolerance we may get by learning another language. Uh, professor Thompson, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Talk about what you're finding out um, in your research about learning another language. It actually does improve our level of tolerance of others? Well, yes. I mean, um, there's different ways to look at the idea of improving tolerance and a couple of different ways. One is an increased tolerance of cross-cultural understanding. And the other one, which is really more focused on research that I do, is an increased tolerance of ambiguity, which means the ability to interact with people or situations when you may not know exactly what's going on. Hmm. And, I mean, part of that is it seems like to get into another language, you – I guess it's one thing to learn the language. It's another thing to get into the culture and learn the language in the culture. Is is there a difference between learning it, you know, in a a classroom – from a teacher, you know, in the United States learning Spanish in the United States versus actually being in the community, being in Argentina or South America or somewhere? Uh, yes, uh, there's definitely a difference. And even there's different terms for those types of language learning. So the type of language learning that you might do in a classroom is called instructed language learning. And the type of language learning where you might just say, hey, I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to go to Costa Rica and pack a suitcase. And you just you know, start living with a host family or some friends you find online or something like this is called um, nat- more it's a naturalistic approach or naturalistic language learning. And I think probably for there's pluses and minuses to both of those. And I think that some people are more do better in a, in a classroom instructed learning, learning situation. And some people do better in a more naturalistic uh, approach or a more naturalistic setting. Um, basically, if, if the language instruction in the classroom is done well, 
it should sort of mirror, though, this naturalistic approach in the sense that maybe a lot of you guys listening and, you know, I know when I was first learning languages uh, in junior high, I, you know, learning French meant memorizing verb charts, right? Well, language learning really isn't supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be more, um, how can I effectively communicate? Oh, if I make a mistake in grammar, that's fine. Am I getting my message across? That's the important thing. And so if language teachers in classrooms are doing their job, they're more or less preparing students to, you know, go abroad or, you know, interact with people in their, um, you know, speech communities at home that do speak these other languages. Mm. It's um, I I learned Spanish, lived abroad for two years and used my Spanish and then I hadn't used it for years. But the other night I started watching a Netflix series where they speak Spanish and was use, I was using subtitles. And I noticed mm-hmm. the longer I got into it, the more I could just naturally go back to my second language. I could – I no longer even needed the subtitles. I could just listen and I was getting it. So is it mm-hmm. – because I, I, part of what – one of the points you bring out is that being bilingual – helps us filter out distractions. Is it just that Mm -hmm. it's using our brain differently? Is it using more of our brain? What is it doing? It is. Well, you know, learning your your first language or your L1 is stored and processed in one part of your brain. And your second language is not that it's an entirely different process, an entirely different part of your brain, but it does use, you know, different aspects of your cognitive abilities. And in the sense, the phenomenon that you were just describing where you haven't used your second language maybe in a while, but then you, you know, hear someone speaking or maybe you visit a country that you haven't visited in a while. And it takes you, you know, maybe 30 minutes or so to get, quote, you know, warmed up mm-hmm. or your cognitive juices flowing in the second language. And then you find that a lot of the language which you thought you've forgotten is resurfacing and you're able to process it again and use it with um I guess, relative ease than you thought maybe 30 minutes before. And so this is a phenomenon that many people, that, you know, realize uh, when they haven't used the language in quite a while and then they are exposed to it again in a kind of an intense situation and they realize that, oh, actually, I didn't forget everything. I'm able to still communicate and, you know, process it, which is one reason why learning um, a lot of my research involves, you know, multilingualism. So not just learning one foreign language, but learning a, you know, a second foreign language and, um, my findings really strongly point to the fact that once you've learned your first foreign language, learning the subsequent ones are actually much easier. Really? It, does it matter if it's like a Latin-based language versus going to Chinese? I mean, it would, not at all. It doesn't yeah. matter at all. Mm-hmm. It's you know, and it's interesting, and a lot of people have that that idea that oh, well, of course, if you learn French, learning Spanish is going to be easy because right. they're both you know Latin-based languages and the structure is similar and you know so on and so forth, but. Um, and a lot of my research I've done, I do a lot of quantitative research, which means I collect, you know, data from hundreds of participants and use numbers. But I also do, you know, open-ended questions, which participants can write a few sentences about, you know, a certain topic that I ask. Or I do sometimes interviews where I kind of get deeper into some of the topics that I found interesting in the, in the quantitative results. And the first time I discovered this, I was doing uh, research in Brazil, and this was back in 2008, um, it was for my dissertation research, and one of my participants, I was interviewing her, and she said, well, of course, learning English is easy for me because I already speak Japanese. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, <laughs> okay, there's something here. There's yeah. something to this, you know, this processing effect. And, you know, the same thing, I'm, you know, starting to learn Turkish. My Turkish is okay. I can, you know, talk about food and clothes mostly. Um, well, the things that are important. Finding, 
Well, ex- well, I know things to get around. Right. right. So when I'm there, I can you know call a taxi and ask him what he had for lunch, and it's a great conversation. Um, but I'm finding that a lot of the previous language learning experiences that I've had are explicitly helping me with my Turkish knowledge in terms of pattern finding and you know jumping to conclusions, hypothesis testing. I see relations in vocabulary that maybe aren't evident, and people with different language backgrounds may not have the same types of, you know, inferences that I would make. But, you know, so really, to answer your question, it doesn't matter what the subsequent language is um, for most people. And some people don't see a connection or a perceived, you know, positive interaction with previous language they've studied, and they don't think it helps them. And if they don't think it helps them, then, of course, it doesn't. So you right. have to be willing to be open and see this connection. Uh, is is Which comes first, the learning of the language uh or because one of the things I read um, in your article was about uh, we become more creative by doing it. We we might mm-hmm. be a more risk taking. So are we more a risk taker anyway? And that's what drives us to want to learn languages. Or are we more learning languages and that makes us risk takers? You know, it's interesting that it's it's hard to determine causal effects with, you know, a lot of aspects of uh, applied linguistics research. And I would say that Well, first of all, a lot of people are required to take language, right, Right. in school. And so the ones that perhaps continue it long term are the ones who have enjoyed the experience. But I don't think it necessarily has to do with their personality traits per se, but also about interaction with their classmates, their colleagues, the instructor, the materials used, how positive of an experience it is, and whether they're you know, inclined to continue has a lot more to do than just their personality. I will also say that personality characteristics, we're finding out more and more that these types of characteristics, which we once thought were innate, like language aptitude Mm -hmm. or even, you know, IQ and these types of things, there's sort of a baseline, I guess, starting point for everyone. But then those features are really quite dynamic and they change a lot based on the context and the situation. Um, So, if one maybe is more creative to begin with, a little bit more than another classmate, if that person has a, an awful language learning experience or, for example, has a very high level of anxiety, which isn't mitigated by the instructor, then that person might stop, even though the person might have had you know, a higher level of creativity or you know, tolerance for ambiguous situations to begin with than his or her classmate. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I when I was learning Spanish, um, I, I don't have anxiety, but I'm pretty highly sensitive. So I actually mm-hmm. I get feedback from people and I'm very adept at see, receiving feedback. And I remember when I would speak and I would notice that they noticed that I was kind of new at it. Um, mm-hmm. It actually shut me down because I'm like, oh, uh-huh. boy, they're noticing how not how I'm not a very good communicator here. And so it, it seems like if you didn't have that barrier <laughs> – um, uh-huh. of knowing of how effective you are or ineffective, you might just, you know, wing it, say more, speak more. Sure. And that has a lot to do with um, the kind of the second theme in the article I talked about, which is the tolerance of ambiguity, right? Right. So, I mean, language learning as adults, it's, it's a difficult thing to do because we're used to be able, we're used to being able to express ourselves intelligently, right? I mean, you know, we, if your English is your first language, you can have conversations about any topic you want, essentially, that you know something about, like religion or politics or, you know, the weather or whatever you want to talk about. But when you're starting to learn a second language, a lot of older learners get very discouraged because they have all these great thoughts that they want to express, either in the classroom or outside of the classroom, 
and they don't have the words. Mm. And so, and, and as you just said, in your experience, people might notice, oh, you're just learning or, yeah. you know, so on and so forth, which, you know, maybe makes them a little bit nervous or makes them want, kind of want to shut down. But I think the key is to just forge on right ahead and not be worried about, oh, I didn't understand that, so I'm going to freeze. Or, oh, someone noticed that my accent is different, mm-hmm. so I just shouldn't try anymore. You know, these types of things. Yeah, shut, and not so shut down. Things, right, exactly. Those things don't matter. I mean, the way your, your accent doesn't matter. I know there's a kind of a big uh, misperception that, oh, if I just study really hard, I'm going to sound like a, quote, native speaker of mm-hmm. the target language, which, you know, as an adult, is I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a goal that shouldn't be the main goal of a language learner. So um, adequate communication, effective communication, interacting with the target language and the target culture really should be the main goals. And just, you know, advice to any people, you know, struggling with learning a second language out there or a foreign language, just keep doing it. Keep putting yourself in situations where you have to use the language. And then eventually it's going to come easier and easier and you're going to become more and more successful. It's so true. It really is. And it's, it is so powerful, and we'll talk about it after the break. When you, when you do know you're finally connecting, and you mm-hmm. and you're communicating without thinking about every word, and you're right. getting and you're mm-hmm. picking up information just naturally. It's such a powerful thing. Um, when we come back, let's continue the discussion with uh, Professor Amy Thompson, associate professor of um, and linguistics graduate program director. Um, at the University of South Florida. We're talking about an article she wrote, How Learning a New Language Improves Tolerance. We'll put that up on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. Stick with us. We'll continue the discussion of language. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you remember being forced to take Spanish in high school or whatever language you chose? Have you been using that at all? And uh, do you think it really changed you? Well, joining us on the line is um, Amy Thompson. She's an associate professor of, uh, I believe, linguistics. She's the linguistics graduate program director at the University of South Florida she also um, wrote an article, How Learning a New Language Improves Tolerance. She re- received her Ph.D. from Columbia University um, in history. So she's been very, very busy. Amy, thank you again for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. And, and if people yeah. want more information, they can go to your website as well, right? I mean, they can go and just straight to amysthompson.com and find out more info. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm actually, I took that website down just recently. I'm working on it. I'm updating it. Um, but there is, I have my website on the University of South Florida, and my CV is posted there. And of course, my email address is also on the USF website. That's great. Do you think it, as educators, are we, are we teaching children language um, and a second language? Are we doing it in a way that it's, it's most advantageous, that, that they're actually getting these deeper levels of you know, increased creativity, tolerance, things like that. So um, as we were just talking a little bit before the break, uh, there's slowly but surely, I think language instruction, uh, and I'm talking specifically about the U.S. context, because that's the one I know the most about, is 
becoming updated in a way that is doing what it's supposed to do. Now, unfortunately, a lot of um, instructors who end up doing language teaching don't have training in the way to do this, and that's kind of where the big gap happens. Um, a lot of times, uh, very unfortunately, in my opinion, I think in the opinion of many other people, you know, you, someone might get hired because they are a native speaker of a specific language, whereas the the idea is that just because you speak a language doesn't mean that, you know, you know how to teach it or you know really enough about the structure to convey it to other people. Um, and so I think that, I mean, the key is that you really need to be teaching a language in a way that when the students leave the classroom, they're going to be able to have meaningful interactions with other people who speak this language, whether it's another non-native speaker or native speakers. Um, and so I think the answer is uh, yes and no, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Hmm. Is Because again, we and we talked about this earlier, that it's one thing to live it in the country and learn it in the country. It's another to learn it in a classroom. But you you make a point in your article that Learning a language helps you learn a culture. So how do we pick up culture and the culture of these uh, languages from just talking? Well, um, there, I mean, there's different ways. So it depends on, I guess, if, are you talking about talking like in the specific target culture situation? Or, or even in just, in a, I mean, just knowing another language also informs me about the culture, right? I mean, it sure. informs me about, mm-hmm. I mean, even the speed. I I was in Argentina. My son um, served an LDS mission in Mexico for two years. And the Mexican mm-hmm. Spanish is different than the Argentine Spanish. And the speeds are different and intonation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot just hidden in the language. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, just one reason why learning a new language increases your, you know, cross-cultural understanding or, you know, increases your tolerance of ambiguity is if you learn something with a different structure than your first language, you all of a sudden realize, oh, well, gosh, in English, it's subject-verb-object order, Hmm. but in other languages, the object might come first or the verb come first comes first, or, you know, like your example, Spanish, wow, sometimes you don't need an explicit subject. That's amazing. Mm. I didn't know people could talk like this, right? Or, you know, other simple things like um, in French, there's two verbs to know, like to know someone or to know information, and they have very different meanings. And just to realize that French-speaking individuals conceptualize knowledge in a different way that English-speaking individuals might, we just know that from learning some simple verbs, which you would learn in the very first semester of your language learning. Oh, and it was humbling to me to realize that the Spanish language seems to understand the differences between love, because mm-hmm. there's so many different words for it, as opposed to the English language where I can love a burrito and I can love my wife, and I'm not yeah. always sure mm-hmm. which was different. Um, right. So it's, it, it is. It almost creates... Um, I guess that's the tolerance you're talking about, almost a humility that, boy, I, there's a lot to know. Right, exactly. And what, what the, the lexical items or the vocabulary words that have been created for a specific language in a specific context, so as you mentioned, like the Spanish in Mexico is quite different from the Spanish in Argentina, which is quite different from the Spanish in Spain or Puerto Rico mm. or any of these countries. And one is not inherently better than the other. They're, they, they're just different. They've developed differently. They've had contact with different um, other languages, and they have different needs in terms of what the language needs to express. So if you live in a place where it doesn't snow, you might 
not have a word for snow, right? Mm, right. And you might eventually need one via the you know media and like you see snow on TV. You need something to describe that white fluffy substance which falls from the sky. But you may not have differenti- differentiating vocabulary words for snow, for example, and you might just have one generic one. Yeah. Do, do, do you feel it should be mandated? I mean, it, it seems like if it increases and expands our mind and if it puts us maybe in, in a more neutral position instead of a position where we believe, you know, English is the only word language and we're the only people, is, mm-hmm. should it be required? It, it seems like it's, it's, it's almost as important as you know, reading, writing, arithmetic? Well, you know, I certainly think so. Um, I, you know, I'm an applied linguist, and so this is what I have devoted my life to studying. And I, I mean, I know that, um, I mean, where I work at University of South Florida now, where I did my PhD at Michigan State, I mean, just the being able to walk up and down the hallways of my office is just incredible to be able to go from hearing, you know, Korean to Japanese to Arabic to Spanish to French to German, you know, yeah. kind of like as you go door by door by door, you know, down the hallway. And I do think, I mean, you know, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I get asked this, of course, all the time about, you know, why don't Americans overall, and of course, I'm making broad generalizations here, but by and large, Americans are not that interested in learning foreign languages. Um, And I think in some ways, it's, um, we're we're relatively isolated as a country in the sense that, you know, it's, it's a big massive land that has, you know, a country bordering on the north where in parts of Canada, of course, French is the first language. And in the part, the bordering on the south where, uh, you know, Spanish is the is the first language of the people who live there, um, you know, other than uh, indigenous languages that exist in both countries. But I just, I, I think that a lot of people don't see the need. They don't see the immediate need, let's yeah. say that. Um, because, you know, in the U.S., you don't have to be bilingual to get a job, mostly. Although... You know, there also has been research to say that if you are bilingual in a lot of jobs, you have a higher salary. So if you can, if you're a nurse practitioner and you're bilingual in Haitian, French, Creole and English, and let's say I'm thinking of the Tampa Bay area or Spanish and English or, the you know, two very needed languages, then you will get more money. And so there's it's not that there isn't a need. It's just that you your work and life doesn't immediately depend on it for most people. And I yeah. think. I think that's a shame, and I, I, I do wish that more people would, you know, devote time and energy to language learning. In Europe, but, you see, you do see that you you end up your 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 you know minutes or a few hours from another country with another language and another border and another culture, and there's so many of them that you know if you just travel a little bit, you're going to you're going to need it. But yeah, we're kind of I mean we're landlocked in a way in the mm-hmm. English language, but there is so much. There and I honestly just the just what it can do to your spirit to be able to understand a whole other world. Right. No, I know, and of course there are. I mean, a large number of people who live in the U.S. Um, and English is not their first language, and um, the the attitude is sort of. And again, unfortunately, I think. Well, you know, now you're in America, you need to speak English, you need to learn English, with oftentimes a little effort on. Um, Americans' part to try to you know learn other languages to integrate people into a specific community, um, and so you know it's just it's it's and it's hard. Like you said, you mentioned before, it causes a lot of people anxiety, or you know you get embarrassed or shy when mm. you're trying to express yourself in a language that you're not that comfortable with, and so it's it's certainly understandable that you know a lot of people don't have the time or energy to 
focus, I suppose, on this um, skill, which might for a lot of people uh, appear to be uh, frivolous isn't really the word I'm looking for, but, you know, not, like not 100% necessary for their day-to-day life. Yeah. You, you mention a lot the phrase tolerance of ambiguity. Uh-huh. Um, so explain to just the lay listener that I mean, you've already mentioned it and given us ideas. What are some more ways that having a tolerance of ambiguity is beneficial to society? Because we live in a society where it seems like a lot of people argue opinions as if they're facts. Uh-huh. And um, and it's creating a lot of tension in our culture right now. Well, sure. And I mean, a tolerance of ambiguity is actually the, the two topics that I wrote about in this How Language Learning Improves Tolerance article are related. So tolerance of ambiguity also relates to tolerance of accepting and trying to understand people from different cultural backgrounds, right? Or even with different political ideologies or different religions or, you know, the list could go on and on. Just tolerating the quote in, in, in applied linguistics, there's a term, you know, the other, which means just someone who may be different from you, right? Yeah. Um, and so the idea of, I'll use a very simple, you know, example. So conversation styles. If you're, you know, if you're used to kind of the more English-American conversation style, you're sitting around talking and you politely wait till the person finishes and then you insert your opinion and it kind of goes around in a nice, you know, turn-taking, calm conversation style, right? And so I vividly remember, um, I did a study abroad program in France when I was in college, and I went to stay with some friends a couple of weeks, some French friends a couple of weeks before my program started. And at the dinner table for the first week, I just, I was scared to say anything because it appeared that people were shouting at each other all the time. And really, it took me about a week to realize that that was just a normal kind of conversation style. And then I was able to then insert myself and jump in and, yeah. you know, disagree vehemently with what someone was saying and, you know, so on and so forth. So just the act of saying, oh, that's not, people aren't being rude by interrupting. That's just their cultural background and conversation style. And that's, you know, that's a simple example, but there oh, are yeah. you know, many, many like that. Um, well, and it, it broadens your mind like now. I mean, and this is, that was just France. I mean, right, let's sure, not absolutely. even talk about now Turkey and you're learning mm-hmm. Turkish and sure. let alone every other culture that we don't understand. So it almost creates right. a space, I guess, ambiguity of learning in my world of communication theory. It just creates a space, a learning, a space where you allow things to keep floating while you make sense of them. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you're not, you know, I think I mentioned in my article when you're talking to someone, you're not going to be able to stop them and say, Wait, hang on, I don't know that word. Yeah. Look it up. Let me process it. You have to just kind of make an intuitive guess and keep going. And sometimes you guess wrong and sometimes you guess right. But you're always going to get feedback from your the person you're speaking to or in applied linguistics, you call that your interlocutor. So you're going to get feedback from this person, whether your guess was right or wrong. So if you kind of guess in one way and go in a direction, you have to be able to also watch for cues to that person, you know, maybe furrows their eyebrows to say, oops, I, I don't really know where you're going with this. And then you think, oh, maybe it meant this other thing that it could have possibly meant. Yeah. And you kind of bring the conversation back to a, a different direction. And so it's, it's exhausting, right? Um, I know that I don't know if you experienced this when oh. you were living abroad for the first time. But, man, the first time I was uh, abroad, I slept more than I yep. ever thought Headaches. was possible because, you know, my mind was processing 100% of the time when I was awake, so I just needed a lot more sleep. Yeah, I had a headache every night. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, when yeah. is this going to end? And I remember going to bed. I, in my head, I would be translating nonstop. And then mm-hmm. you reach this moment where I remember dreaming in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I think I've reached the moment. Or when the headaches go away and now all of a sudden you're just getting it. You are in tune. You're dialed mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to translate yeah. in your head. But then a, mo- a word would come up and you'd write the word down. i got to remember that one. What was that? Sure. It's cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's really neat. Um, what would you – so just as a parent, we've got about a minute left. What, mm-hmm. what would you – how would you, you know, engage your kids to be more excited about learning a language? Well, you know, I think um, – I'll give you an example of what my husband tells me about his process of learning English when he was younger. Um, he loved it. He, you know, he grew up in Turkey and, of course, you know, Turkish is his first language. Mm. And but he did Saturday classes of English learning, and he said it was like the best day of his week. And he he talked a lot about the language teacher that he had, where the the teacher didn't you know didn't have a stressful environment, encouraged students to speak, did games and songs. He said looking back, he doesn't remember it as a class, hmm. but then he realized he learned. So I think the key is to keep it fun, especially at a very young age, right? Because kids need to play, they need to interact, they need to have fun and giggle and, you know, laugh and, you know, do these things that kids are supposed to do. They're not supposed to, you know, on after school or on Saturdays, sit at a desk and like write verbs. I mean, that's not, you know, the conjugate. Yeah, I hated that. You know, verb charts. I mean, that's, I think we all have negative flashbacks to those situations, which are they're important in the yeah. verbs, but not maybe in verb charts. But anyway, I guess keep it fun and keep it light and, you know, keep, you know, maybe focusing on the cultural aspects and the music and the art and the food and, you know, these types of things to really not just get kids, but to get all people kind of interested um, to know what learning a second or foreign language can do for them once they're out of a classroom setting. Love it. And get immersed. Get into it. Uh, Professor Amy Thompson, thank you again for joining us. We so appreciate your insight. Uh, Amy Thompson is Associate Professor of Linguistics at the University of South Florida and uh, wrote a wonderful article that we'll be putting up on our uh, Twitter page, How Learning a New Language Improves Tolerance. Great learning for all of us. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it really, I love this idea of language. Um, Here at BYU, we have one of the biggest language learning centers around, teaching, I think, hundreds of languages. And it's, there's something about it, folks. You can't know something that you don't try to learn, right? You've got to work at it. And having learned a language, I do think it makes me more attuned to the fact of what I don't know. I can only imagine if I went and learned a third language now, what that would do to me. Um, Thomas Merton um, wrote this wonderful quote, love is our true destiny. We do not find the meaning of life by ourselves alone. We find it with another. And the meaning of life is found with another human being, right? And there's so many other views if you have, uh, it's you know we have these stories about the refugees. They're coming and they're going to destroy America. And what would happen if you actually went and learned their language? What would happen if you actually went and had a meal with them and communicated and talked? You might actually find out more about who you are. 
Don't put up the barrier if you don't understand the people. And don't assume that they're all bad. Just a little coaching moment for you, helping you see the good in the world and be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 